0: This evening I would like to speak about sacred space. When we come into a meditation room or a meditation center, we're often, we're often invited to think of ourselves as entering into a sacred space or a sacred time. and. What I would like to explore and talk this evening is what our understanding is of that, those words, what it is that makes something into a sacred space, what it is that can make any moment or any time in our lives into a sacred moment. This space that we are in here, could never be made into a sacred space, solely through the presence of Buddha statues, or altars, or because we engage in particular kinds of rituals here. This room, and this time, is made sacred essentially through the dedication and the commitment that each one of us brings into this space and into this time. This space is made sacred through the intention that we bring to it, to be awake, to be free, through our intention that we bring to open our hearts to this moment and to deepen an understanding. On one level, this room physically is simply a room. And yet when we enter it together with a shared intention, a collective intention, to be awake, to question, and to deepen, then in a very real way, this room does become a Bodhi tree that holds and that witnesses the power of our own commitment to peace, to wisdom and compassion. And through that gathering together of intention, then this place can become extraordinarily sacred. On one level, when we sit in meditation, all we actually do is keep our bodies still in a particular posture. And we know that when we sit in meditation that there are many journeys that it is possible for us to make in that time. We can plan our futures. We can uh, do autopsies on our past. We can fantasize the most ideal romances. We can replay the tapes of all of the many moments in our lives when we've been hurt. When we sit in meditation, we can make the journey of redecorating our home or making vacation plans. We are certainly not psychic spies, we have actually no idea what you do when you sit. (laughs) That's a marvelous thought, isn't it? That we have no idea what you do when you sit. Equally, I might mention, you have no idea (laughs) what we do when we sit. We also know through our own experience that there is another journey that we can make when we sit in meditation, and that there is another way of approaching this time. When we come into this room and begin to sit with an openness to not knowing, if we come into this room and begin to sit with a commitment to not dwelling, to clinging to nothing, and to resisting nothing, then this moment in this room becomes a very sacred time for us. If we come and begin our sittings with a willingness to draw no conclusions but to sit with an open heart, welcoming all things with a compassionate awareness, then we are making a journey which is committed to learning, which is committed to letting go and to freedom. When we come into the meditation room and sit with a resolve to be awake and to be present, then we do sit like a Buddha, We sit in the spirit of a Buddha. And in that spirit, we don't actually need a room full of statues or any kind of ritual. But instead, we find ourselves sitting with a tangible presence of being committed to wakefulness. The simplicity of this room And the simplicity of this place is in a very direct way, a way of honoring that spirit of openness, that spirit of exploration. The simplicity is a way of honoring this journey, this vehicle, which is dedicated to understanding and transformation. And as I mentioned to you yesterday evening, simplicity is a powerful vehicle. It is why we encourage it. It is why we you know, don't offer entertainment, why we don't serve tea in here, why we don't bring in beds and libraries. We don't rest- refrain from these things because we are particularly in love with rules. but the very refraining is a commitment to openness and vulnerability. It is actually a way of honoring a spirit of renunciation and not knowing. In stripping ourselves of so many of these props in our lives and in this time, we actually do lay down much of the familiarity of our world. We lay down many of our habits and roles and identities, the very things we often use or attempt to use to distract ourselves from reality or to shelter or comfort ourselves in. When we come into this room, into this time, in a spirit of openness, a willingness to learn and to listen, to let go of agendas and shoulds, to let go of beliefs and opinions and judgments. This quality of renunciation, this quality of openness, makes this time of sitting into an extraordinarily sacred time, a sacred moment, a time of learning and deepening. When we sit in this way with that quality of commitment, then actually we do sit in the same spirit that inspired Siddhartha on the eve of his enlightenment. In the story of the Buddha, it's said that after Siddhartha, you know, had spent a lot of time kind of messing around on the path, trying this and that, and asceticism and willpower, etc., etc., he came to that time in Bodhgaya where he sat beneath the Bodhi tree with a kind of unshakable resolve to be present and to be still until he understood what was true, until he understood what it meant to be free. And in the story of the Buddha, it's said then that Mara, the forces of delusion came attempting to uh, tempt Siddhartha, away from his commitment. And Mara assaulted and tempted the Buddha with promises of pleasure, images of lust, with images of anger and greed. Mara attempted to provoke doubt and to provoke hatred. And as the story goes, the response of the Buddha wasn't to get agitated or fearful or resisting, but it said that Siddhartha simply said to all of these appearances of Mara, I know you. I know you. And in that acknowledgement, in that willingness to meet Mara, the very forces of Mara lost all of their power. And as the story says, the illustrations it used, that in Siddhartha's willingness to meet the forces of Mara with welcome, then the poisonous arrows of Mara, when they met Siddhartha's unshakable commitment and resolve, were transformed into flowers. Now, we could think or imagine what a different story this story of Siddhartha would be if that clarity of intention and commitment to openness was actually missing, if Siddhartha hadn't sat with that quality of resolve and dedication. Can imagine the story of the Buddha if Siddhartha had sat under the bodhi tree and said, well, you know, I'll be here as long as the mosquitoes aren't bad, or as long as my knees don't hurt, or unless my pillow's uncomfortable, or, you know, if any of this happens and I'm going home, you know, we could imagine what a different story, the story of the Buddha would be if, you know, he'd gone to the Bodhi tree and, and taken a picnic basket in case he got hungry, on the eve of his enlightenment, or I got a little thirsty and needed, or if he decided, well, I'm only going to sit as long as it's pleasant, you know, and if anything disturbs me, I'm quitting. And the whole of the Buddhist tradition would, of course, be rewritten, and we would be sitting in meditation rooms with picnic baskets and beds <laughs> and, <laughs> and mosquito nets, etc. What is emphasized over and over again in the teaching of meditation, is the significance of our approach, the real significance of our approach, our intentions, not just in our sitting and walking, but in the whole of our lives, that our practice, is transformed through the approach, the attitude, the intentions that we bring to be awake, to open, to see clearly. The whole of our lives, the whole of our world, can be transformed through a spirit of reverence, the willingness to learn that we bring to our lives. There can never be any room, any place, any moment that is intrinsically sacred. But all of our moments, all of our places, all of our times become sacred through the way that we rest within them, through our willingness actually to touch this space and this moment with a sensitivity and open heart and a willingness to let go. In that openness of heart, our whole world becomes a sacred space, just as each moment becomes a sacred moment through our intention to attend well, to listen well, to welcome open-heartedly. A sense of living in a sacred way does not require many props. When we begin to glimpse what it means to live with reverence, to attend very wholeheartedly to all of the moments in our lives, we do really also begin to see the ways in which the very ordinary, things in our lives can become deeply special, and in the same moment the ways in which the very apparently special things in our lives become simply ordinary. When we are able to touch our world and to touch ourselves in that spirit of reverence, to be present with a commitment to openness and to wakefulness and to learning. We actually live in a world where we do not have any enemies, where we don't have any opponents, where we don't even consider anything to be a distraction. Because think of the moments in our lives or in our meditation, when we say, oh, I'm distracted, you know, something's really distracted me, or something is really an obstacle I have to get over. What are the things that we call a distraction? What are the things that we call an obstacle? Very often, it is all that we feel unable to welcome, that we feel unable to welcome, that we feel unwilling, actually, maybe, to even form a relationship with. When we live in a world with no opponents and begin to understand what that means, then we also live in a world of many possibilities, an open and endless invitation to see freshly and deeply. When I lived in India, one of the things that you did in India was that you, you tended at some point anyway to do a kind of uh, guru tour. You know, you'd kind of travel around and visit all the current and most famous gurus who were um, available. One of the gurus that I visited in South India was a guru called Pundi Swami. And the story of Swami is that one day this farmer was out plowing up his fields, and he saw this arm sticking out of the ground. And being relatively curious, he went over to see if anything was attached to this arm, and lo and behold, find buried beneath the ground this man who was alive. So he helped to dig him up and brought him out. And as you know, in small Indian villages word travels fast and pretty soon there was a crowd and they began to talk together and concluded, well, anybody who could, you know, be hanging out underground and still be alive must be some kind of saint. So eventually of course all the local sadhus and swamis also heard about this and, and this man was um, put on a cart he didn't actually talk. It was put on this cart on wheels, and immediately a very very quick promotion, actually, into a saint. Um, and it was quite fascinating. Got, uh, soon, you know, word spread, and soon a bus stop was made, and it was called the Pundi Swami bus stop. And you would go to the Pundi Swami bus stop in order to visit with Pundi Swami. And Pundi Swami never spoke, never, never, never talked. Um, but you know he would sit on this cart on wheels and they put little uh, stand around so he could have curtains around and occasionally they would draw the curtains and he would disappear you know kind of like a magic show and then (laughs) the curtains would open and Pundi Swami would still be sitting there and in one hand he would have a handful of Indian money in the other hand he would have a a, a can of Coca-Cola and all day long thousands of people would come and they would file by Swami and bow, and he would grunt, you know, this basically did did, grunted all day long. And some people would come away with this, um, you know, some people would come away just saying, you know, well, you know, he was this guy who grunted at me, you know. And <laughs> other people would come away with these most remarkable stories, you know, about how uh, they had had this very powerful experience and how Pundi Swami psychically had communicated with them and revealed something to them. And and these feelings were very genuine, you know. They weren't made up. They were very genuine. Some people had very totally genuine and deep openings through that experience. And on one level, it really, it really is kind of irrelevant whether Pundi Swami was actually a fake or whether he was a saint. On one level, it was really quite irrelevant. What was totally intriguing to see was that to go into that moment or that encounter with such profound intention. Uh, to be open, to be touched, that that in itself was so powerful. That that in itself could bring such kind of inner openings and depth and revelation. And whether a person chose to attribute that to Pundi Swami, or whether it was really simply born of that deep inner commitment just to be so still in that moment. Um, And certainly, you know, it wasn't that people afterwards signed up as as students or or followers as disciples. But what was significant is through those openings that that person would go away with this deeper sense of inspiration and commitment to learning and to wisdom. These kind of stories And this kind of transformation that can happen through openness, of course, happens not just in India or around particular gurus. It is something that I have often seen and be extraordinarily touched by in the world of children. And I think of when my own children were very small, you know, the number of times that You know, I would make these very grand plans, you know. We were going to do something really exciting today, you know. These little kids and, you know, I'd I'd tell them this whole grand plan, you know, about how we're going on this big hike, we're going to climb this hill, we're going to see this and then we're going to see that. And how many times we would make it, you know, three or four yards from the doorstep and they'd discover some kind of pebbles that were totally intriguing and magical and special, and how we would never need to go up to the top of this hill or to see this or to do this, that this was total um, in itself. It was complete in itself. Not because this particular patch of pebbles was different than another patch of pebbles, but how it was transformed in their eyes to their innocence, their capacity to see anew, their capacity to see freshly. This is actually the spirit we are cultivating in meditation. This is what this practice is about. Learning to be present in this moment as if it has no history at all. Learning to be present and in ourselves as if we have no history at all. But what is actually revealed to us in this moment? And how do we touch ourselves? How do we touch the world around us? How immediately and deeply and clearly do we actually see? And how many of the struggles that we engage in, we really don't need to engage in at all? How many times we are struggling with our ideas, our images of how things should be, how they could be, of how this moment should look to us, and how we may be perhaps sacrificing something very important in those struggles. It is very essential. To remember that all things and all moments are welcome in awareness. Awareness actually has no preferences and no conditions. The pleasant and the unpleasant are equally welcome. The moments of dullness and pain, the moments of peace and sensitivity, awareness makes no distinction. All are welcome. Awareness has no hierarchies of better or worse, of for or against, of acceptable or unacceptable, of spiritual or unspiritual. These are the hierarchies of the mind, the hierarchies of the mind that is hypnotized by its own images and shoulds, and judgments and goals. the mind that is hypnotized by all of this has many preferences and many hierarchies. And we suffer because of them. Sometimes it is helpful when we do struggle to look at the nature of that struggle. Does our world have to be perfect for us to be at peace? Do we actually have to be perfect? To be at peace. Peace does not necessarily have anything to do with perfection, it has to do with relationship. But think of some of the struggles that we might get into when we say to ourselves or to others, you know, I'm having such a terrible time here, you know, I've got this going on and that going on, you know, oh my mind, you know, oh my... My, my, my feelings, my images, you know, it is all such hard work. What is it that we are struggling with? Sometimes thoughts, sometimes feelings, sometimes sensations, but mostly our struggle is about resistance. Mostly our struggle is about rejection. About aversion or about not welcoming. Now, it is helpful to explore those moments of struggle and to see really, you know, that it's not a question of blame. Um, Much of our conditioning, much of our relationship to the world is telling us again and again to turn away from the unpleasant, to turn away from the challenging, to turn away from the disturbing. And why? Because none of this seems to really offer us an identity that we find really acceptable. You know, so it is better to move away from it. Because we don't want to say to ourselves or to say to the world, you know, I am angry, I'm greedy, I'm defensive. We don't question that we might not need to say any of that at all. I mean, you think of a group situation, you know, I mean, how would you like to, what would you like to say in a group? I mean, you know. To, when we meet together. I mean, obviously, you know, most people would rather go into a group and say, you know, oh boy, I'm having a terrific time, you know, I'm just so much at peace, I feel so loving and compassionate. You know, and sometimes we go in and say, you know, oh, you know, I'm like this and I'm like that, and somebody else says I'm at peace and I'm having a great time. And we feel this kind of tightening inwardly, you know, like, how dare you? You know, how dare you? You know, you have this identity which is so much more acceptable and attractive than this one that I seem to be inhabiting. But when we don't welcome, when we struggle with welcoming, when we struggle, you know, follow the pathways of aversion, of resistance, of rejection, Then, actually, we always are dividing our world into friends and enemies, opponents and allies, and in doing this, we abandon learning. We abandon learning as long as we are dividing either our inner world or our outer world in this way. When we abandon learning, then I feel also we exile ourselves from living in a sacred way. And living in a sacred space. Struggle, the struggles of resistance, they're born of certain beliefs and they create certain beliefs also. We begin to believe that peace is somehow separate from challenge, that calmness must be, you know, this kind of mythical calmness must somehow be separate from thoughts and from feelings. That compassion must be somehow separate from the unpleasant, from the difficult. And that stillness must be separate from movement. We may even come to believe that after, after I've got rid of the thought, After I've got rid of that which is difficult and challenging, after I've ended that which is unpleasant, oh, then I'm going to be so peaceful. We think, you know, we start to think, well, once I I sort of manage to separate myself from my noisy neighbor or get a different roommate, or once I've had you know, surgery on my knee or my mind or something, then (laughs) I'm going to be so compassionate, you know, I'm going to be So still, I'm going to be so loving. But this kind of mind is always reaching, always reaching to the next moment, perceiving the sacred as being in the next moment, another time, another place, another experience. And honestly, it is a very fragile and maybe even a very deluded peace and compassion and stillness that is dependent upon the absence of the unpleasant. It's totally easy to be compassionate when we're not disturbed. It's totally easy to be really calm when nothing challenges us. It's so easy to let go when there's nothing that we want, you know? It's so easy to be forgiving when there is nothing that is hurting us. But surely the real challenge to our commitment and our willingness to learn is found in those moments when we are willing actually to meet our demons, to meet the demons of anger, of wanting, of resistance, of dullness, because these are the moments when we are asked to be most present in our lives. These are the moments when we need to let go of what is really an obstacle. Not the anger, not the dullness, not the impatience, but the obstacle of rejection and resistance that camouflages awareness. In those moments when we meet our demons, These are the moments when we actually really learn most of the deepest lessons of our lives about patience and compassion and renunciation. Out of our commitment to being awake, out of our commitment to learning, we are able to say to our demons, Welcome. And then there is peace. You know, peace is not difficult. If we are really willing to let go of our craving for the pleasant and our aversion for the unpleasant, it's a remarkable amount of peace in all things. It's simply there. There's a remarkable calmness and spaciousness that begins to unfold when we are able to welcome our demons. And we really see it is possible for us to partake of the invitation to travel new pathways in our lives, to forsake the old pathways of struggle and striving and rejection, and to travel the pathways of compassion. In many of the Buddhist traditions, so, one of the rituals that is rather big is the ritual of bowing, in some traditions more than others. You know, if you go and sit at Zen retreat, you would find that you know you bow at the beginning of a sitting, at the end of a sitting, you bow to your cushion, you bow to your teacher, you bow to each other. Suzuki Roshi once said that even we bow to cats and dogs. and to Westerners, some Westerners, they find bowing a little strange because they confuse it with some other notions. They confuse bowing with some sort of notion of bowing to something or of valuing some something or someone more than themselves. But as one nun once said, "You know, we don't bow to. We don't bow to get something." We don't bow for something, but that we bow acknowledging the Buddha nature in all things. And something I'd like to read to you from Suzuki Roshi. He said, In your big mind, everything has the same value. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, between teacher and disciple everything is Buddha. You see something or hear a sound, and there you have everything just as it is. In your practice, you should accept everything as it is, giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here, there is Buddhahood. The Buddha bows to the Buddha, and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. When we approach our own practice, our own sitting and walking, when we approach each moment in our lives with a commitment to wakefulness and learning, we are actually cultivating this spirit of bowing, bowing in welcome, greeting our demons, greeting our struggles and challenges, learning how to bow. It is important for us to cultivate this attitude of welcome, to nurture this spirit of unconditional wakefulness and presence. It is contrary to much of our conditioning. You know, much of our conditioning tells us that if we meet the difficult or the challenging, we should fix it. We should get rid of it. We should alter it. We should make it perfect. And if we can't do any of these things, then we should abandon it. And we can become a little obsessed with fixing ourselves and our world. Anna Douglas once told me of an encounter she had with someone in California who said to her, you know... I don't know what to do anymore, you know, when I have a problem or I feel confused. You know, this person said, you know, I don't know whether I should do an enlightenment intensive or see my therapist or have a hot tub or a massage or, or whether I ought to go on retreat or go sit. It's like so many solutions. What should we do with all of these solutions? You know, so, so many kind of fix-it answers. You know, more trouble than the problem, <laughs> even. Trying to decide which one we should use to fix the problem. It is important to remember that meditation is actually not about solutions. It's not another solution to add to our portfolio of solutions. Meditation is concerned with wakefulness and not with solutions, but with wisdom. Meditation is not concerned with perfecting and fixing our world, our mind, or our story. It is concerned with being free and awakening to what is true. Meditation is not concerned with redecorating the contents of our mind or rearranging our world. So there's the absence of the unpleasant and more of the pleasant. Meditation is concerned with learning the lessons of peacemaking, of being at peace with all things, with inner richness and with depth. In our practice here, we are cultivating a path of wakefulness, which is very powerful. It has the power power to transform the most simple activities that we engage in, and all of the moments that we touch. It is not the technique that I'm talking about, that what we are cultivating here is that very profound and deep inner love of wakefulness. And cultivating that commitment to deepen in sensitivity and understanding, compassion through our intention to be awake, we begin to see that it is possible for us to live in a sacred way in all places, to live in a sacred moment in all moments. It is not something that we become an expert in. It is something that we learn again and again and again. What is our relationship to this moment? How are we holding it? How are we touching it? What is our bond, our connection? I think we do begin to see that through our intention to be awake, to be present, to be so present, that this moment becomes a sacred moment. And this space for all of us, becomes a sacred space. May all beings [coughs] live with sensitivity. May all beings live with openness of heart. May all beings live with wisdom.